I think you can um, make the first scratch on the walls of your cell tonight, in a des- deservedly so. Um, I would like to clarify and maybe elaborate a bit on some of the background for the exercise we're doing here. Is that okay? The teaching of the Buddha refers to what we're doing as Satipatthana. Sati is the untranslatable word. Uh, We have settled for awareness, attentiveness, presence, mindfulness. Um, The fullness of our bringing the fullness of our minds to bear on something, attending on something with the fullness of our mind. The second part of the word, the patana bit, um, has two possible translations. One of them is uh, a domain, a field, an area. So it can be understood as the foundation or the place of mindfulness. The other translation uh, is differently construed. It uh, would come from the word upatana, which means to build up, to erect, to... uh, Yeah, to build up is probably the easiest. So, on one hand, we can understand this word satipatana to mean It is the domain in which we practice mindfulness. Uh, In the other meaning, the other translation would say the building up of mindfulness. Both meanings make perfect sense and uh, the commentarial tradition has left no doubt that it thinks both are valid. So, there is an intrinsic difficulty in something that is so close to our experience, like mindfulness. Let me try to identify some aspects of it for, uh, for us to be able to understand more easily that this already takes place. So much of Buddhist practice can sound we always have to do things that we don't yet have or that are uh, only to be obtained after long, hard work over countless lifetimes and and oceans of sweat and tears have to be shed in the process of acquiring it. And I, uh, that uh, is not entirely false, but it's also, uh, it's partial truth. So, mindfulness is something that is here with us any given moment. It is something that has to do with the healthy functioning of mind. If we do not have mindfulness, uh, at least in some modest degree, we have major problems. And people in white shirts uh, uh, have long, long and forbidding names for our condition. So if we do not have mindfulness, we have really uh, major uh, mental health challenges. So, 
the thing about mindfulness, it is not that it is rare. What is uh, common is that people are quite capable of being mindful for some part of the time. The rare thing that is difficult to attain for an un, untrained mind is continuity in mindfulness. Let me go back to where the word comes from. The Vedic tradition, out of which the Buddha has arisen, has the term already. The Buddha didn't invent the word. In the Vedic tradition, the word smurti means something like uh, recollection. It is an aspect of memory. The Buddha did not invent very many things when he came on the scene in Indian religious tradition. In fact, he was ingenious at changing things he already found. So, the term smrti or sati as it comes out in the Pali language is one of those examples. He took a term, took some of its old meaning along and gave it a lot of new meaning. One of the qualities of sati, let's identify some qualities Oh no, let's start with functions, that's maybe more interesting, and then go to the qualities. Some of the functions of sati is that we can acquire out of a, a wealth of different experiences a coherent picture. Yeah? Sati allows us to gain a coherent picture of things that happen. We can hear, we can see, we can taste, we can smell, um, we can touch, we can think, we can imagine, we can do all those things at the same time. And sati acts as a connective tissue for a range of mental and sensory processes so that they merge in some place. Sati gives us a certain degree of coherence in our experience. If that Sati falls away, all we have is totally fragmented in da sensory data inputting. Um, instead of having uh, a coherent feel for a situation, all we get is different heaps of sensory data that are piling in and that are not connecting to each other. There's a very big difference between a car that consists of parts of that car neatly arranged in a functional way and the same parts just piled up on a big heap. Because, you know, technically it's the same. You know, and practically one seems a lot more useful than the other. You could still say, well, all the parts are there, but um, with sati we do not just have the sensory apparatus functioning, but we actually gain a coherent uh, quality in our experience. That is a, a, a sort of a minor effect of sati. Another effect is sati allows us to, out of a range of different sensory data happening in our sense spheres, allows us to identify an individual aspect, to pick out an individual aspect. Without losing the background, suddenly something comes into the foreground. That's one of the things Sati can do. 
Sati also acts as a, as a sort of medium. It carries an individual aspect of our experience in front of that part of our mind that is capable of understanding. So Sati kind of acts as a carrier. It moves, it takes one aspect of our experience and uh, takes it to the part of the mind that is capable of scrutinizing, of seeing, of understanding something. Another aspect of Sati is the fact that while something changes, it allows us to stick with it. Yeah? It allows us to stick with a thought, although the thought seems to ramify and move and have branches and little contradictions curling in on itself. You know, we can stay with it. Now, this capacity to stay with something that changes is an aspect of, so, of, of sati. If we just look, some of our mind, yeah, is a big stream, you know, big stream of consciousness. You have heard of this. You may have read a big invention of early 20th century literature, literature tradition across Europe, uh, stream of consciousness writing. You get this kind of stream of consciousness, lots of stuff going on, moving. A little sound here triggers off something, a smell, an idea is triggered. Sati allows a singular aspect of our experience to be taken out and to be attended to. It's capable of fixing with something and going with that something through its changes. Be that an idea, be that a sound, be that a taste. Um, a visual process. Now, there is a great power in our capacity to attend to things. Sati has uh, an even greater effect, a profoundly healing effect and clarifying effect uh, to the extent it is capable of continually staying with something. There are other aspects that come in with sati. There's something that suspends judgment, something it is that is capable of looking, sensing, knowing without judging. Yeah. There's a kind of impartiality about it. Um, often, if our hearts are in good shape, then our sati is tinged with a definitively benevolent quality, something that is interested, something that is welcoming. Yeah. It has, if our hearts are in, uh, in, a, in good shape, in good form, if we are reasonably balanced and healthy, then the quality of inf interest that infuses our sati is benevolent. Yeah. We take an interest. We attend in a, a benevolent, welcoming way the events in our experience. Latsati has a, a range of qualities. It can be brittle, superficial, uh, it can be fluid, it can be malleable, it can be mobile, or it can be rigid. Now, if you haven't thought about this, then it is probably a little bit overwhelming because it seems so normal to be 
basically present and to have a reasonably coherent feeling of our, our world, um, that it doesn't really make much sense if we start looking at a singular quality of mind. I'm telling you this because I am confident that you all experience this, although you do not, may, you may not have singled out this as a quality of your experience. I know you wouldn't be here if you hadn't acknowledged in some way or the other the value of this. Uh, and if you uh, would uh, have nothing of that whatsoever, you would definitely not be here. Uh, you wouldn't have made your way here. Sati is something that Buddhist mind training has singled out as the quality most useful to deepen an understanding, to cultivate mind and strengthen its wholesome faculties, and to be the forerunner of collectedness or of calm. So if we distill sati, so to say, we end up with something called samadhi, calm collectedness of mind. I don't like the word concentration because it makes me think of a wringing out a kind of cloth with both hands in concentric ways and squeezing it together. Yeah, that's what the word concentration does to me. And um, um, this is something very different than what the Buddha was speaking of when he spoke of the effects of concentration meditation. He would speak of things like one-pointedness, he would speak of things like become one, uh, unifying uh, the mind, yeah. all things that feel very different to me than squeezing everything together and concentrate on something. The training the Buddha spoke of, we call, which we call meditation, uh, is slightly different if we look at the, what the Buddha um, envisaged this to be. He called it culture. He called it bhavana. He called it mind development, if you want. That's probably the most accurate translation of his word for meditation. And it is important that we do not lose that out of sight. He didn't think that meditation was sitting for days on end on a cushion, trying to squeeze our minds into a little tip at the front of our nose and trying to stay there for prolonged hours. That is not his notion of uh, meditation, of mind cultivation. What makes Buddhist meditation Buddhist is the fact that it combines practices that lead to the calm of mind, to the collectedness of mind, with the insight, what he called uh, truth-seeing, understanding the way things are. This is greatly fostered by a quality of mindfulness. This quality of mindfulness, he suggests we train in four basic areas. Now understand, it is difficult to speak about the process of human experience because it's so complex. The more you pay attention, the more you see so much is happening. Yeah. You can spend a boring weekend here at Gaia House with people whom you don't speak to and sit here in a room where there is very little entertainment and you can notice that so much is going on. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why it is difficult to speak about the process of experience, because um, which part? Yeah. 
every part seems to ramify, go into different directions and have you 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 pull a little thing and everything else follows yeah it's kind of getting bigger and bigger and bigger the buddha's suggestion to practice and develop mindfulness was very simple he said we should first distinguish four rough areas of our experience one of those experience one of those areas is the area of bodily sensation what he called kaya nupassana satipatthana the practice of attending uh, the physical aspect the somatic the bodily aspect of our experience we are embodied creatures we know that all our experiences have a, a somatic, a bodily aspect. Every thought, every mood, every uh, evaluation of our experiences, pleasant or unpleasant, has a bodily aspect. If we choose to attend to that, we can become more and more conscious of this. And there will, I hope to point out, there are good reasons to do that. Another aspect of our experience, for which we do not have a proper translation in uh, any of the European languages I'm familiar with, in the Pali it is called Vedana. Although we do not have a proper uh, translation for it, we know exactly what it means. It means that we evaluate our experience, any aspect of it, mental, physical, emotional, as pleasant, as unpleasant, or as neutral. Sometimes people translate this term as feeling, which is um, misleading. It is not a feeling in the sense of a feeling in the body, and it is not a feeling in the sense of, uh, I had a feeling we should go. It is not a feeling in the sense of an emotion. It is a very clear judgment. It's a clear mental evaluation of something as pleasurable, unpleasurable or neither. If you want to be fussy, you could say it is the the aspect of pleasure or lust we take in any aspect of our experience. I think Stephen uses the term hedonic tone. I don't know where he picked it up, but this is technically exactly the right stuff. So Vedana, the second big area for building our attention is Checking out whether something in our experience is rated as pleasurable, interesting, agreeable, lustful, or unpleasant, disagreeable, boring, unlustful. Yeah? While you do not have a word for this as a domain in your experience, you have plenty of experience in that domain. You know, this is a, an area where we have major volitional activity going on. There is. It's very easy to attend to things that are pleasant, interesting, attractive, and uh, that I like and give me a good feeling. And it's quite difficult to sustain my attention on something that is unpleasant, boring, uh, disagreeable, and uh, that turns me off. That's quite difficult. So our attention, just to... uh, take that 
in advance, say that in advance, our attention is deeply biased. You know, our capacity to be mindful with something is profoundly biased in favor of things pleasant. You know? Now, what we exactly rate as pleasant is something else, whether we like, you know, grunge rock or Bartok violin court, it uh, doesn't really matter much. Uh, but it's uh, for those people who prefer one sort, this is pleasant and the other is very likely to be uh, somewhat less pleasant. Um, both groups of people will favor and will find it a lot easier to focus their attention on whatever they favor most. The next area of mindfulness practice where we, according to the Buddha, should clearly establish uh, mindfulness is the area we would call emotion. You know, the citta nupassana satipatthana is the domain of the heart. It is the domain where most of our suffering happens, unless you have very strong physical suffering. Most people I know uh, experience their suffering in the emotional domain. It is uh, the domain where purification happens. It is the domain where a calm happens. Um, it is the domain where we mostly identify with. We identify with our states, we identify with our character traits, we identify with the modalities of our heart, you know, sunny, bright, optimistic, gloomy, uh, depressed, cynical, whatever. You know, this is the domain of our, the shape, the states of our heart. That's the third domain which the Buddha encourages us to uh, identify as a domain first, and then to investigate the nature of experience in that part. The fourth domain, and the final one, is the area of the content of our mind. The raw material for the fourth Satipatthana is thought, concepts, ideas, images. Uh, maybe you have auditory uh, concepts, visual concepts. Um, it is basically that which is going on. It's the storyline that goes on most of the time in our heads. Now, it is obvious to you easily that we cannot really separate these domains, you know. In practice, every aspect of my experience encompasses all four. I walk out here, I am stunned. I recognize a flowering magnolia. I am surprised that magnolias are flowering in September. Uh, I am intrigued, I look at it, it does something to me. This process encompasses all four satipatthana. There's something that makes, ooh, yeah, a, a general primary stunning, yeah, something that amazes. That's often the first start of something. There's a positive Vedana. Something is interesting, something is agreeable, something stimulates my interest. That would be called Vedana. I attend, I attend to it. Well, because it's stimulating, I turn to it. 
I look at it. Um, and it elevates my heart. It, in, it gives me joy. I feel a sort of an uplift. That would be the aspect of citta. That aspect of uplift does something with my body. Yeah? My breath seems to go a little bit deeper. Something in my chest opens or widens. I may produce a smile yeah, on my face. This would be the aspect of kaya, of body. And then I would say, oh, Magnolia, September, how come? And turn to some expert who happens to be sitting near me or some resident here. Yeah, that would be the aspect of Dhamma. You understand this experience of meeting a couple of flowering magnolias in September and what it does to me is one piece of experience. This piece of experience, let's say, imagine it, it, it has a kind of a, a cloud-like shape. Yeah? This event of experience um, cannot really be segregated in color and shape and people to ask and counting the months and uh, bodily sensation. It doesn't make sense to take it apart as that. You know? It comes together. But it does make sense to look at it, say, from different vantage points. So, please understand these satipatthanas, these four foundations of mindfulness, to be different vantage points uh, for an investigation of our experience. We can say, we are interested now in the vantage point of physical experience. As anapanasati is mindfulness of breathing in and out meditators, we are particularly interested in the vantage point of bodily experience. We do not want to think about Pali language and grammar and two and a half thousand years of Buddhist history and philosophy and commentaries on it and sub-commentaries on it and translations of the commentaries into sub-commentaries. We do want to attend to bodily aspects of breathing and the sensation this gives us. This is a decision. That doesn't mean there are no books, there are no traditions, there are no commentaries, there are no relations. They have no value. This doesn't mean that. But it means right now, the task at hand is attending to a breath, its sensations, as I feel it in the present moment. Yeah? That is a focus. It's a chosen limitation of the scope of my mindfulness. So please understand these exercises not in a reductionist way. We're not trying to categorize human experience into four buckets called satipatthanas and they all have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. These are nominal qualities. We choose the angle of body because the body is reasonably slow. The body is by its nature present. Yeah. The experiences it gives us are always of a present nature. The mind is a little bit more problematic in this respect. We can have an idea of something that happened 30 years ago, and the idea is totally unreal insofar as we cannot really do anything about it anymore. Uh, it has happened a long time ago. It is of very little significance to us now. But the idea it doesn't come alone, you know. The idea toes along a little sort of mood, yeah. Maybe a sadness, yeah. Or maybe a little bit of gripe, a little bit of anger. And 
If we follow the idea a little bit longer, something settles in. The mood settles in that comes with that idea. Now the difference is, while the idea had as its content something that is age-old, that bears very little resemblance to our current lives, the mood that it brings along is happening right now. The mood is real, right now. We can sense the sadness or the joy or the anger connected with that thought, right now, in the present moment. And it is as if, with the help of that old thought, we have kind of concocted a current emotional state. And we can marinate in that stuff. We can warm it up, you know. How many of you have warmed up old angers? You know, I have some, some of those angers, you know, they're kind of whinging angers, and then there's kind of grumbly angers, and then there's kind of really deep, deep ones from below the kidneys, you know, kind of ooh, angers, yeah. And it's very easy, you just follow that one thought in there, and there it is again, yeah. There you sit, 30 years later, and it's still ooh. Now, there's a great risk in this, because we keep by means of thinking uh, in a haphazard and uh, sort of rambling way, uh, we risk reheating old stuff, you know, lots of old stuff. We risk uh, bathing and marinating in very old states that have not been terribly useful when they occurred and that they're definitely not useful if we reheat them and warm them up. So, one of the reasons why the body is such a useful vehicle for uh, building mindfulness is the fact that it is always anchoring our attention in the present moment. It has very little associative power. You see, ideas, they have a definite tendency to uh, ramify, to fan out. You know, there's something explosive in the associative power of mind. Um, and they basically do the same as rabbits and cabbages, you know, they multiply. All my ideas have a tendency to multiply. I followed many a thought who told me, think me to the end and I'll be the last thought and I'll leave you in peace. Um, I have seen too many of those to, to really believe that they do that. None of them really has delivered. The nature of thought is to vitalize itself and to lead to more thought. This is particularly so since I suspect, like myself, you have been given training and been encouraged to associate, to think, to correlate, to infer, to um, deduct, and all these sort of things in your uh, academic or schooling. And this is very useful. This is how we do grades and this is how we get jobs. But unfortunately, it doesn't really make us very happy. Um, it fills us with thoughts and it's very difficult to switch that off. Uh, if you take samples of what you think in any 10 minutes of meditation, you will... Uh, I don't want to insult you, but you may, you may find it not much of those 10-minute thoughts is terribly ingenious or terribly creative or even particularly intelligent. You know? yeah. If I insult you, I'm 
I'm sorry, and if you are intelligent, I apologize. But, um, I, I infer from myself, and um, the, the sad truth is that much of my thought is highly uncreative, highly unintelligent, and profoundly uh, lacking relevance to my, my real life. So it, it, it does make sense to have a, a handle on how thought is capable of manipulating my uh, whole life. Particularly since, while harmless enough as the thinking process may seem, uh, in its toe uh, there come fairly big emotions and uh, solid, reasonably solid constructions of self and personality and who I am and what I have failed at and what I should have done and uh, what my true potential would have been if only and yeah there's uh, and as the years go by <coughs> the the material uh, for such type of thought uh, seems to increase now you will have noticed that you can With the same past, you can feel one moment that this is a successful story, that you have, you know, jumped from success to success, that you've done right choices and you've learned from the mistakes you have made and come out all glorious and shining. And the next day you think of yourself as a miserable failure who, uh, you know, whose um, deplorable bad judgment kind of lines up bead after bead of mishap and uh, failure. It's just kind of lined up. I have played that many times and it's becomes apparent after a while that the vantage point of the chronist really is the decisive factor for the story. Yeah. If the vantage point is a happy mind, it is likely that your story is going to be arranged as a happy story. If you happen to be gloomy and grumpy and lost and lonely and isolated, then from that vantage point your story probably looks like the inevitable conclusion of something that has never really been any different to what it is now. I say this to make clear that the danger of the thinking mind is not to be underestimated. One of the ways to stop or to um, slow down the thought process, the associative process, is simply by attending to bodily processes. The kingly road to the stilling of thoughts, uh, so the Buddha tells us, is uh, attentiveness to the breath. The breath, every big culture and religious tradition has understood is the vehicle between body and mind. It is with the breath that we modulate the body. Yeah? One of our most simple and early defenses against pain is by holding the breath. Yeah? Every little child knows that. <laughs> we just hold the breath, we freeze, and we stop feeling. Yeah? We desensitize by doing that. The breath modulates the body. Because the body sits still, the breath goes more quiet, and the mind that attends to the qualities of breathing also refines itself and goes more quiet. Simple principle of mimicry. Yeah. 
one starts to resemble the other. The Buddha says in a very uh, uh, powerful statement that the mind, what we incline towards, what we take up and reflect on or uh, spend our attention with, often and often, is what we are likely to become. We become the things we spend our time and our attention with. What the mind takes up often and ponders, this is going to color the heart. This is going to color the way we experience ourselves. If the mind becomes more quiet and more calm, we'll become more subtle in understanding the process of our experience. We become more skilled in directing our attention. See, it makes sense to be circumspicious with what we do with this attention. Like we have uh, become a bit more careful what we eat over the years. Yeah? We have become a bit more conscious that certain things, just because they can be bought, doesn't necessarily mean that they are good for us. And we have learned what is uh, becoming. We have learned what, we, um, what helps us, what helps our bodies. The same way we can help our heart by making sure it gets proper type of nourishment. That doesn't mean that we're just going to look nice things and think pleasant thoughts, but it means that we are uh, becoming more conscious of the economy of attention. There's a big, big race for our attention. Many things want to be seen, heard, felt, tasted. there is a great calling that we attend to things. You know, some of our most creative people in the graphics industry are working for the advertisements out there. Some of our intelligent folk are working in the media. Uh, some of our intelligent folk working in the sales department. You know, we have a definitive job sorting out things that want our attention and evaluating whether this is necessary, relevant, timely for us. We have lots of information, we have lots of data, and it is a a big challenge to make sure that the things we attend to are relevant to our lives, to our happiness, to our freedom. So it does make sense to understand more profoundly how Mindfulness, how attentiveness, how awareness is being harnessed, is being managed, is being generated, is being given. I am deeply convinced that one of the most precious gifts we can give to each other is the quality of our attentiveness. I have not experienced anything more profound than human beings willing to attend to each other in a deep way. The quality that we can attend to others cannot be more than the quality we can attend to ourselves. If we are unable or even unwilling to attend to the processes of our heart, of our body, of our uh, thought and imagery, it is very difficult to do so for somebody else. If we do not understand how these things hang together in our own experience, it is very difficult to understand what's happening for others. So, 
I am very convinced this is not a selfish undertaking to sit in meditation retreats and contemplate not just the nature of the universe, but contemplate the nature of your particular piece of the universe. Uh, every individual that is conscious and that deepens its own understanding of itself, deepens the context and the consciousness, consciousness in which it lives, works, uh, operates. So, the Buddha's teaching on structuring our mindfulness and identifying individual patterns in our capacity to attend and in our capacity to screen out, to put it bluntly, uh, is a very profound teaching and it's a very profound exercise. It's an exercise whose scope is a bit bigger than a two-week, uh, a two-day a two weekend. The Buddha made in his, uh, one of his big suttas on meditation, he made a statement that if somebody would do this exercise for seven years, then two things would be expected, either complete liberation in this lifetime or else a liberation that would lead to a rebirth in a very high realm. And then he goes down from seven years down to seven days. Yeah. Unfortunately, within two and a half days, we, we cannot really do the whole program. Nevertheless, uh, this is um, a start, and I'd like you to bear with me for a moment and identify, intellectually identify, the areas of sati once more. It is crucial that to cope with the overwhelming nature, the density, the speed, the emotional charge of our experience, it is crucial that we have a set of theoretical tools that help us identify in which area of our experience uh, things are happening. Yeah. So it is important that we can identify what is body. To put it simple, it is what is tactile, what is haptative, what we can feel, what we can touch, what we can uh, sense in the body. This doesn't mean we visualize body or we visualize chakras or we uh, focus on particular points in the body. It means that we can lower or sink our capacity to attend to something into the embodied realm. That's the first of, of the foundations. Now that embodied realm is stunning. There's a lot of intelligence in the body. Our bodies know things we often do not want to know that they already know. Yeah. Um, the more we inhabit this body, the more we are capable of attending and opening up to what this body feels, the more this intelligence is at our fingertips. We're capable of uh, attuning to this and we're capable of picking up. These bodies, in the Buddhist word, this is very simple. This is six senses. The five outer senses, which are all of you familiar, and in the Buddhist, Buddhist psychology speaks of a sixth sense, which has as uh, the sense field is mind, 
mano, and as object of that sense, there's thought, concept, and image. You know, what we can conceive, what we can think, what we can conceptualize, these are the objects. As the taste is to the tongue, the thought, concept, and image is to the mind as a sense base. The mind is more than just a sense base, but it is also a sense base, the sixth one. One aspect of Buddha's teaching, which is very profound and which has received a lot of attention from the Buddha itself, and every meditation tradition I'm familiar with has understood that, is body. Why? Why body? Some of our most profound attachments happen to our physical nature. We are in this world experiencing world through a body. Everything that is in our minds has come into that mind somehow through body, through the fact that we are incarnate, that we are embodied. Um, the body is reasonably slow in its development and often when it does produce sensation they're quite sort of plodding, quite sort of tangible, quite sort of concrete. That's why we're often bored with body. Uh, bodies can have a lot of joy and pleasure, lust, they can have a lot of pain and discomfort and in either of those situations it, we generally find it easy to attend. If we're pain or if we experience highly pleasurable stays we can stay in our bodies. But there's a whole range in between that most of us will probably find it boring to attend to bodily process. I do not have to sit here and tell my body what it has to do with this evening soup, yeah, or with the cracker I ate. Uh, my, this is something in that body that knows exactly what to do with the cracker and with the leaks from today. Um, so I find it a lot more interesting to think about leak, about green or leaks in general, or the leak market situation, or about the nitrate content of arable ground, or you know, I find it a lot more fascinating to think about leaks and the leak politic uh, than about what this body is doing to process that leak. So once my attention, and once you see the net of my attention is calibrated to thought, their edginess, their clarity, their speed, I'm very likely to miss out the bodily sensations because they... It's like thought are bigger fish, yeah? And if my net is made for big fish, the small fish, they just flit past the net, they just flit, flit past the mesh. So if my notion of being present is being present for my thoughts and my images, then the things that happen in the body just seem not to register. Yeah? It's as if I'm in a, on the wrong scale. So one of the things we learn in Satipatthana practice is we learn how to switch mode. I think of those four Satipatthanas often as four TV channels. Simply, and uh, this is admittedly an apocryphal interpretation of the Buddha. And, um, it, um, I could not really give you the proper Pali for TV channel or so, but the, 
effect is very simple. Imagine, like, it, like, like in, a in a TV, all the channels are here all the time. You know, it's happening all the time. You do not have the slightest idea what you're missing out right now. You know, there's countless satellites up there. You can have Kurdish TV, or you can have uh, Thai TV, or you can have uh, Reykjavik city, central, uh, local TV, or whatever. You know, it's all happening. If you had the right satellite dish and the right frequency, you could tune into this. Same with the Forsadipatana. It's happening all the time, but we can switch channels. So sometimes we switch channels just to check in. The beginning of a meditation session, I want to know what this Akinjino condition is really about. Check in, channel one, Rupakanda. What's happening there? Okay, slightly stiff shoulder, bit cold at the neck. Quite alive, belly is okay, certain warmth there. Reasonably relaxed, tendency still positive, you know, everything in the green segment. Okay, zap. Channel 2, Vedana. Is this pleasurable? Is this unpleasurable? Is this neutral? Slightly stimulated, mildly pleasurable, nothing ecstatic. Thank you. <laughs> Channel 3, Mood. Oh. Well, there's something alive and curious and bright. There's something slightly cloudy there, which doesn't really speak so loud, but it's there. It seems to be at the background. Concern. Underneath the surface, which is lively and uh, bright, there is some kind of pain and concern. Okay, we could go into this, but thank you very much. Tap channel four. What is happening there? Thought, concept image. Well, this is a disquisition on sati, on mindfulness. Uh, uh, is this clear? What comes next? Does this make sense to these people? Do they understand me? Um, are they too tired yet? Am I, am I not specific enough or am I too specific? Yeah? There's this kind of thing going on. Now I can choose. Where do I continue? If I'm a meditator, zap channel one, back to the body. It's a lot slower, it's a lot more quiet there than on channel four, isn't it? Yeah, sort of a plodding physical sensation rolling from one thigh gradually to the knee. Sense the resistance of my rib cage against the breath. Slight draft at the back of my head, texture of my um, jeans on the inside of my palms, the weight of my right leg on my left thigh, breathing, temperature, heaviness of the lower part of the body, something pleasant about its solidity, wrong, wrong channel back to the body, yeah. <laughs> this kind of thing, yeah? Why is this interesting? Why is this crucial? It's simple. The body, because of its slowness 
and because of its immediacy is often a better ground to weather difficult states. If I'm anxious and if I follow my habit, anxiety is an unpleasant state somewhere in the top part of my stomach, that's where it happens for me. And I do not like that experience. One way of dealing with experiences I do not like is I deflect them. Yeah? So I go away with my awareness from where it happens, here in the top part of my belly, I go into the head. Yeah? I do that for most other experiences as well. You know? I am happy about something, I go to the head, I'm angry about something, I go to the head, I'm anxious, I go to the head. So there's a definite tendency there, whatever experience I have, to conceptualize it, to think about it, to think of where it comes from, who is responsible, can somebody be blamed if it's unpleasant and locked up, can somebody be applauded, can I take the credit, can I prolong it if it's agreeable, can I have more of it, could it go a bit more left, yeah. If states have an emotional charge, they are very likely to produce more of that associative process. Yeah? So when, we are, when I am sad, I think of sad things. I think of memories. When I was sad, I think of sad people. I want to see sad movies, listen to sad music, read sad stories, identify with sad characters. Yeah, I go into the bus and I see sad people there, unshaven, bleary-eyed men, women holding their backs, talking to themselves, you know. That's what's happening when I'm sad. <laughs> if I'm angry, I, I go into the same bus and I see thuggish youngsters and I, I see things that make me angry. You know, people who chop up seats and misbehave and, you know, hurt each other and if I'm happy, I go in there, I see kids, I see lovers, I see people who have a good time, I see the beauty in things, I see, you know, the plantain trees have changed color. Yeah. It's the same bus, it's the same line, it's basically the same people, I've done that long enough. Uh, and yet, the state I'm in pre-selects the nature of my reality to a remarkable extent. So, the lesson is, if I'm capable of attending to the physical aspect of my anger, I will be less associating angry situations, angry people, angry moments of my life. I will not be rehearsing the archives of my anger. I will stay with the angry sensation, that hardness in my breath, that fist somewhere in my stomach, the tightness in my ribcage. And if I stay there for a moment, two moments, 80 seconds, this anger is very likely to abate, simply because all things change. Not just the nice things, the painful things, the sad things, the annoying things, the frustrating things. All they do is change. If I go back to the head, I can feed, you know, uh, the thing I've, that made me angry in the first place, I forgot a long time ago. Right now I've kind of dissolved my third marriage, I've kind of run through global world crises, I've knocked off every, four, every single one of the 14 major generals of the Burmese junta, I, you know, I, 
Um, if I stay here with my anger, if I'm capable, if my mindfulness is trained enough to hold the physical aspect of my experience of anger, it will last a lot less long. It'll be a lot less ramified. I will experience the impact of that anger in a lot less dramatic ways. All it takes for me to be able to stay with something that is not pleasant, that is difficult to bear, and that I need to identify first. I need to be able to identify this aspect of experience and I need to be willing and capable of staying with it, holding continual mindfulness of it. The same holds true for fear, the same holds true for doubt, the same holds true for uh, states of confusion. I have never ever resolved a doubt in my head. You know, doubt is an emotional state. It is a question mark with the feeling that there shouldn't be a question mark. And what we do with doubt is we go up to the head, we run probability scenarios, we go through uh, calculations, pros and cons. But in fact, it's an emotion. It's happening here. It cannot be resolved in the head. So if my mindfulness is strong enough to hold the doubt and its unpleasantness on a somatic, physical, embodied level, this doubt will dissolve. It may come back, you know, things have a tendency to come back, but while I can be with it, I am free. So for many of our flooding emotional states, particularly, it is crucial that we have the capacity to anchor our awareness in the body. The body if it feels well, the body if it feels painful, the body if it feels sleepy, bored, elated. You know, that we are familiar with these bodies in their various stages and that we can actually be with these. We can hold our experience rather than have the experience hold us. Yeah. That means we need to become slightly bigger. It is as if the walls of our cells need to grow a little in thickness so that they can hold uh, uh, transformative fires, the alchemical fires of transformation in there. So we can. I allow something to be. That's what I do when I meditate. I allow something to be happening because I have learned to trust that I will not repress it and I will not act out. I allow it to be as it is and in that allowance it changes. It manifests the nature of impermanence. So, before I end, I have received various questions regarding meditation today and uh, one question regarding posture. Uh, I do not know who you are who wrote me that note, but do not worry about that posture. Uh, you will adopt your own posture and you will go back to what feels most right to you. If this is important, you will find help to widen your self-body awareness and see whether what you feel is actually upright and relaxed or 
whether you will change your own feelings for your bodily posture. This is just a brief answer. There are various stages in meditation practice. Um, this group here is mixed. Some of you have quite a bit of experience and quite a few of you are new on the meadow, so to say. Um, speaking in psychological terms, there are four major stages in meditation practice. The very, the very first stage is that we learn how to still, how to slow down, how to settle the mind. That is a very first stage. Every uh, tradition has understood this, that it is necessary for us to gain a perspective. The second of that stage, stages connected to the first is that we learn how to move out of the center of experience. Learn that we are not protagonists, that we are witnesses, that we are part of the audience, not part of what's happening on stage. We learn to de- or disidentify, forgot which one is correct. We learn to dissociate, we learn to step back, to retreat, to take, take distance. That's crucial. Unless we have learned to distance ourselves from the potentially charged emotional content of our experience, to distance ourselves from the things we identify habitually with, before we cannot, cannot do that, the next steps don't make any sense. Once we have learned to gain perspective, to step back, to move out, to dissociate, to go away and look at it from a distance, to gain perspective, once we know how to do that, we go back in, yeah? We go back in. Not just to look clinically, observe or witness, but actually to be there, to be with something. Meditation means you can handle more. It doesn't mean it's not going to hurt anymore. It doesn't mean uh, you go to a safe space behind your candle, behind your mantra, behind your meditation object, and nobody is going to hurt you anymore. That's a legitimate wish, and I understand that this has to be taken care of. But once you can do that, you need to go back in where it hurts. You need to go back in where it's difficult, where it's confusing, and understand what this is about. So once we are out there, and we know how to keep distance, we go back in and look at it, and we turn the stones, and we understand the connections. And we learn how to hold more to be with more, to metabolize more. Yeah. The fourth stage is we go back out, we look at the big connection, we look at things like conditionality, we look at things like karma, we look at things like the um, what, what makes freedom. We look at also the patterns of things, we learn to identify how we feed into these patterns, how we become blinded by those patterns. Yeah? Those four stages are indispensable to what the Buddha called meditation. Any reduction of meditation to something smaller than those four stages risks uh, to be something else than what the Buddha meant as the path to freedom. So please um, understand that that meditation is more than a technique, is more than a method. 
you will have plenty of opportunity to uh, deepen, if this is new to you, to deepen that. There are many teachers uh, in this country, and um, there's a place like Gaia House, and there are other places. Uh, some of you come from London. I have spent many years in uh, the monasteries in Amravati and in Chittir, so uh, there are people there who meditate and who offer opportunities to meditate and offer guidance. Um, if you want to deepen this, this is a big path. And there is plenty of uh, material, plenty of opportunity to practice that. Good. Enough of me for tonight. I thank you for your attention. And uh, we'll come back to the topic tomorrow morning. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.